Hi everyone, this is Deb from Dying to be Found. Before we get started today, I just wanted to mention that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. How are you? Good morning. I'm pretty good. Well, I'm awesome. How are you, Deb? I'm pretty good. I feel like I might have beat you up this morning, not physically, but I think I beat you awake this morning. I've been up since five. Well, you did. I've been up since 515. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on this week? Anything? No, not really. So how was your week? It was really good. I went to Florida. And we had a nice little visit with John's friends. And I do want to mention, though, we stayed in this little hotel, motel. I'm going to call it a motel. I did not heed my own advice from my teachable moment from our last episode with H.H. Holmes. And what was that? Well, once we got there, our lodge that we stayed in, it reminded me of Bates Motel. Creepy. Dun, 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 dun. I double locked the doors and we survived. Yeah, it was kind of out in the wilderness, but it was a small little town in Florida, which was a really nice area. We ended up going to the Kennedy Space Center, which was amazing. And we saw the the shuttles that went up into space and it was really kind of cool. And then we also ended up in St. Augustine. So yeah, it was a really nice visit otherwise. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about what we've got going on on our social media. Yeah, I like that. I thought, hey, Beth, who doesn't like a good book? So I thought, what a neat idea to have a little giveaway that we're doing through the end of April 2022, just in case you're catching up three years from now, (laughs) because we do plan on being here three years from now, right? Oh, yes. Now, We have a little giveaway that we're putting out there to thank all of our listeners who found us and are telling your friends about us. So you can put your name in for a drawing for a free audio book by rating us and then tagging us and putting the post out on social media. And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dying To Be Found. And that's Dying, the number two, the letter B, found. And there you can see more details. So the contest, like I mentioned, does end on April 30th of 2022. So get out there and help a new podcast out. All right, Beth, we were talking also about CrimeCon coming up. So there is a crime convention out there for all of the enthusiasts like you and me. And I saw that it is going to be in Las Vegas this year. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be able to make it because it is April 29th through May 1st. But I say let's save our money so we can go next year. Oh, yes. Let's go. (laughs) Sounds good because we are taking over North America, just putting that out there. So, hey, I did see that they have got an online event that we could possibly attend. So if we can't physically make it out there this year, you and I can talk about going online, you know, something to look forward to. For sure, for sure. (laughs) So anything else you want to talk about before we get started? No, I'm pretty quiet today. 
Okay, well, hopefully you can have a little bit of input on what we're going to say, because this is a very high profile case out of New Hampshire. And we're going to talk today about the Bear Brook State Park murders, also known as the Allenstown Four. So this is the story of four female murder victims who were discovered in Bear Brook Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire. At the time, Allenstown had a population of approximately 5,000 people, so it was a pretty small town and everybody knew each other. Kind of reminds me of the town that you and I grew up in. Yes. There are so many components to the story, so I'm hoping that I put everything straight. I was reading about one section and it took me to another section, so I feel like I put it in a decent order that everybody can follow along, but how about you keep me straight? Okay. So to start things off, the first thing I found strange about this case is that the victims, also known as the Allentowns Four, were discovered in pairs 15 years apart. Now, two females were found in 1985, and the other two were found in the year 2000. So I'm going to first talk about the discovery of the first two victims. So I'll call this discovery number one. And the premise to the discovery of the first barrel where two victims were found in the woods, also known as the Bear Brook State Park. These victims were found early in 1985 by a little boy named Jesse Morgan. Jesse was aged 11 around the time that this happened. He grew up in a small trailer park just outside of Bear Brook Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire. Now, when I was a child, I frequently played outside in the woods, and I don't really remember that you ever went outside with us, Beth. You know, I was outside in the woods a lot. I think even back then I was an introvert. I do remember you being in your room listening to music all the time. And that's pretty cool because I learned all about the Bee Gees and... <laughs> Abba and I don't know but you know once I broke out into my own I went a different way on my music taste. Now being the rough and tough rugged little kid that he was at the time Jesse spent his summers outdoors playing in the woods with his friends from sun up to sundown. I did the same thing and it was so much fun. Boy did we ever use our imagination right? Well do you remember how we were told to come home? No. Oh I sure do. The cowbell. Yes. Do you know somewhere amongst my belongings, I still have that cowbell? Are you serious? I am totally serious. Yeah, we got called in people by the cowbell. <laughs> no going outside and doing the triangle thing like they did back in the 1800s, right? Right. <laughs> Okay, so one of the neighborhood kids' favorite games to play was hide-and-seek on their forerunner in the woods. All of the kids in Jesse's neighborhood would take turns riding the forerunner around, or the four-wheeler is what I know, and they would be looking for their friends out in the woods playing hide-and-seek in Bear Brook State Park. So one day, Jesse's friends told him that they had come across a barrel in the middle of the woods. I guess it was their turn to be on the forerunner, and they did what kids do best. Jesse and his friends went out to investigate further. You know, this little story right here kind of reminds me of that movie Stand By Me. Have you ever seen that one? Oh, yes, I did. And it was quite good. It was a really good one. So, you know, you've got a bunch of little boys just taking off and going to explore. And they had heard a rumor going around in that movie Stand By Me. So they were off and running. Basically, the boys did the same thing here, only they did not know what they were about to find. All the boys drove off the trail and found a slightly rested blue steel drum just sitting in the middle of the woods randomly. One of the boys went to lift the lid off of the drum. And when he 
did, an awful stench was released. So Jesse's friend ended up pushing the barrel over. And all Jesse remembers seeing from that point was a white milky substance that spilled out onto the ground. So at this point, the boys took off and then never said anything to the parents about the barrel that they found. I guess they just left it there, right? Mm -hmm. Now, fast forward to November 10th, 1985. So this is the same year the boys were out playing and gallivanting out in the woods the same year. But in November of 1985, a hunter discovered an overturned 55-gallon drum just inside Bear Brook State Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire. When he looked inside the drum, he discovered that there was one adult and a young girl wrapped in plastic. So, of course, the hunter contacted the local police and told them, there's a barrel up in the woods, and I think there are some bones in there. The police obviously went out and did some investigations. They did find the barrel, and what they discovered was that there was a female between the age of 23 and 33 and a smaller female somewhere around the age of 8 to 10 years old. Estimates of the death were somewhere between six months to three years. So nobody really knew how long those victims were in the barrel there. And the police initially canvassed Allenstown going door to door to see if anyone was reported missing, but no one was. Because in a town that small, again, remember the size of town that we grew up in, everybody's going to know each other. So when the police are going around canvassing, then of course they're going to know if somebody went missing, right? Yes, most definitely. Now, they also ran compositions through all of their state and federal databases, but did not come up with anyone matching the description of the two missing females. Authorities eventually expanded their search into Canada, hoping to see if a trucker may have passed through and dropped off this drum in the woods during one of their routes. However, the case eventually went cold as investigators attempted to identify the two bodies, but no one ever came forward, so this case ended up coming to a dead end. The bodies were held at a local medical examiner's office for almost two years as investigators continued to hope for someone to come forward to identify the victims, but no one ever did. And they finally released the remains so that they could have a proper burial. What ended up happening was the Allentown's police chief at the time and a local funeral home worked together to give these two victims a proper burial. And a local gravestone company donated a headstone and had it engraved with, here lie the mortal remains known only to God of a woman aged 23 to 33 and a girl child aged 8 to 10. Their slain bodies were found on November 10th, 1985 in Bear Brook State Park. May their souls find peace in God's love and care. That's very, very nice. I think so too. And for a community to come together. And Mm -hmm. I, I really love how much detail they put into the scribing because anybody who might be in the area, even as a tourist, would maybe have some kind of clues if they saw that, if they knew if a loved one went missing. So interesting that they took such great care to put that on the headstone, eh? Yes, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So in early 2000, a new investigative team was assigned to this cold case. Detective John Cody was in charge of the investigation team. So he decided to head out to the original crime scene to look around for more clues from the original case. And before heading out, Detective Cody initially visited the case repository where the 55-gallon drum was being held so he could take a better look at the evidence where the two victims were disposed of. So he wanted to look 
at the drum, kind of figure out what was happening as far as how it was found and seeing what it looked like. So if he ran across anything, then he'd have a better idea of what was going on, right? Mm -hmm. Now, discovery number two, I'm going to jump forward a little bit because it, it was a pretty big jump in time. On May 9th of 2000, Detective Cody and his team revisited the original crime scene from 1985. And the first thing that he noticed was a hump in the terrain, which to him did not look natural whatsoever. So, of course, this drew his attention and he began walking in that direction. As Detective Cody approached the terrain, he was shocked to discover another 55-gallon drum near the original dump site from the first drum from 15 years earlier. So I'm curious to know during the first investigation, how could they have missed that if it was near the original dump site? I, I just don't know enough about investigations, but it kind of shocks me that it would have gone undiscovered for 15 years. You know what I mean? I think it went thereafter. <gasps> I never thought of that. Well, hold on now. The original site was found on November 10th of 1985. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My, my guess is that he kept these victims alive for quite a some time. Beth, you're a sleuth for sure. I didn't even think about that. Way to connect the dots there. Upon further investigation, two more girls were found inside the drum, just like the other two victims that were found in 1985. Investigators believe that these murders occurred somewhere around the same time as the first murders, where they found the first two bodies and in the same manner, which was blunt force trauma to the head. The victims were also girls, but were much younger than the first two found in in 1985. One victim from the second discovery was discovered to be around the age of two to four, while the other one was believed to be somewhere around the age of one to two. And based on the tests performed on these bodies, comparisons were made to the two victims recovered back in 1985, and results suggested that the two cases were related. The reason they came up with this is because the conditions of the bodies, location, and how they were disposed of was very similar. The only thing the investigators were not sure of at the time was if all four girls were related. In June of 2013, facial reconstruction was performed through the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and through a thorough reconstruction of the jawline was performed using dental records, which specifically showed how your teeth can affect someone's appearance. I had heard that before. Did you know that? No. Take all my teeth out and I will look different. <sighs> Hopefully we don't do that for a few more years. Since the bodies were discovered in poor condition, skin tones and eye colors were not available. So the reconstruction simulations were very simple and made up of black and white publications with minimal detail. Did you ever see these publications, Beth? With the reconstruction? Yes. Yes, I have. And I do remember this being on the news. It might have been on one of those shows like Unsolved Mysteries as well. Mm -hmm. I just happened to go through for the third time and watch season one and two on that show. Interesting because I wonder how many cases have been solved since those were aired. One out of about 16 shows. Wow. Now in November of 2015, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children released a new set of reconstructions. And I feel like 
from what I have seen online, it definitely went from just a sketch over to more of a 3D effect, or even as technology changes, they're able to update what these victims may look closer like. So they did release a new set of reconstructions. But for years, the only composites that we saw on any news stations were very simple images of the four unknown victims that authorities thought were Caucasian or of Native American descent. And the reason they thought this is because I'm going to name these victims just by a number right now, but I will be able to tell you who these people were identified as a little bit later down the road. But in the instances when these victims were found, female victim number one who was found in 1985, was somewhere between the age of 26 and 27. She had curly or wavy brown hair and was between 5'2 and 5'7. She also had extensive dental work, some fillings, and maybe some other work done to her mouth. So they were able to see that. Victim number two was identified somewhere between the age of 5 and 11, also found in the same barrel as victim number one. She showed symptoms of pneumonia, had one crooked front tooth and a space between her front teeth and no fillings in her teeth. So she was also wearing earrings and was anywhere between 4'3 and 4'6. Female victim number three, who was found 15 years later, was somewhere between the age of two and four, and she also had a gap between her front teeth. Female victim number four was only one to three years old and had long blonde or light brown hair. How would they know how long it is? I don't think hair decomposes as quickly as flesh. Even if a skeleton were there or some partial remains, they would still have hair on them for a little bit longer period of time, I think. I'm going to go ahead and start backtracking on a suspect. His name is Terry Peter Rasmussen, and I want to take a little turn because it's important to connect him with all the victims in this case. So I wanted to start with a little bit of a background on Terry Rasmussen, and you'll see why in just a couple minutes. So Rasmussen moved to New Hampshire from California in 1978. He also went by several aliases, including Terry Rasmussen, like I mentioned, Curtis Kimball, Jerry Mockerman, Larry Vanner, and Bob Evans. Okay, why does somebody need to go by so many names, right? Well, Bob Evans, all I can think is... uh, Sausage? Yeah. Yeah, me too. I wonder, I don't even know if Bob Evans' sausage was around then. Who knows? Due to the healthy criminal record that Rasmussen had, he was eventually linked to all alias names through fingerprinting and other crimes and arrests. Depending on the scenario, as I move forward, I may refer to Rasmussen as any one of these aliases because a lot of people knew him by different names. While in New Hampshire, Rasmussen went by Bob Evans and was officially linked to being in the area around the time of the Bear Brook disappearances. I want to also go into one of his relationships that he had. In 2000, a 40-something-year-old woman named Yun Soon Jun began dating a guy named Larry Vanner. Yun Soon was a chemist and an immigrant from Korea. She was in her 40s and considered a free spirit who traveled the world 
all by herself. Good for her. Would you ever consider doing that? Absolutely not. One of our cousins has been known to do that, and she had some really good stories to tell. I don't know if I would do that by myself these days, though. Kathy and I had plenty of trips on the Greyhound bus back and forth to Canada all by ourselves back around the time that this was happening, so I'm glad I can live the tale. Mm-hmm. Yoon Soon introduced Larry to her family, but it didn't go very well. Her family considered him to be quite dirty, rude, and unsocial. And as time went on, Yoon Soon began separating herself from her family mainly because of their differences with her new boyfriend. The two of them eventually got married in 2002. Now, Yoon Soon had a girlfriend by the name of Renee Rose. Renee Rose always kept in touch with her friend, even after she married Larry. However, early into their marriage, Renee would call Yoon Soon's house, but Larry always had a different excuse as to why she could not come to the phone. Yoon Soon was out at her pottery class. She was helping a sick friend and things like that. Typical things, right? Yes. In May 2002, Renee had enough and finally called the police to report Yoon Soon missing. Larry Vanner was then called in for questioning on the disappearance of his wife, whom he had married earlier that year. During the questioning, Vanner first made up all sorts of excuses to the investigators about Yoon Soon's whereabouts. He then became very indignant toward investigators and refused to answer any other questions because if they weren't priests and they were his doctor, both stories had their own place. He basically shut down and wouldn't tell them a thing. What a jerk. Mm-hmm. Now, due to his inconsistencies during questioning, police decided that it was time to fingerprint Larry Vanner. This is when they discovered that he had quite a long rap sheet and went by multiple aliases like I had mentioned earlier. Investigators revisited Yoon Soon's house after Larry slash Curtis slash Terry was placed under arrest and noticed that there was no real presence of a female living there. However, they did see Yoon Soon's picture on the refrigerator and as they went through the house, they found some of her belongings in the garage, such as her pottery that she she was so fond of making. And as they moved their way to a crawl space, they eventually discovered a partially mummified body of Yoon Soon Jun's remains buried under a pile of cat litter. That is horrible. Isn't it? How disrespectful. Yes. One of the investigators took it so far to search around town. At this time, there wasn't a lot of cameras, but they did notice that there was a small family-owned pet store in the same town. So the investigators went in and asked the owner if anybody had come into their store to buy an unusual quantity of cat litter. The owner was able to positively identify Rasmussen by saying, yeah, he, he bought probably 10 or 12 bags of cat litter. Unbelievable. That she was able to identify him after seeing so many people throughout the day. I'm sure they showed him a picture. And then with that quantity too, it would be, that's that's, true. You're right. Stick out in my mind a little bit. Sure. Mm So Rasmussen eventually pled guilty to Yoon Soon Jun's murder, and in 2003, he was convicted and sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. So during the pre-trial hearing of, we'll call him Larry Vanner at the moment, Vanner couldn't keep his mouth shut and began talking about some daughter that he had. However, investigators could not make sense of what he was talking about, but Vanner kept saying that he had a little girl named Lisa. 
and he gave her away years before. Upon further investigation of the story, Beth, I found that in 1986, Terry was living back in California under the name of Gordon Jensen. That same year, he apparently abandoned his five-year-old daughter named Lisa, whom he had told the authorities he had. He had abandoned her in an RV park where they were living in a motorhome. That is so horrible. I find my eyes are, are literally tearing up. That is such a sad thing to happen. Sad. Yes, I could not imagine. I mean, that poor child too, how scared oh. she must have been, eh? Yeah. I don't even, I never was able to find out who found her or how long she went. But if she was living in a RV park, then I'm sure that the surrounding people probably figured it out rather quickly. Now, as years went by, Lisa was curious to know what happened to her father. So she she ended up performing a genealogy test when she was 22 years old. And this is when she discovered that she and Gordon Jensen were of no relation whatsoever. And while the police were investigating Rasmussen over there in California in the Yunsun murder case, they also requested a paternity case in the matter, which found out the same results. So once Rasmussen was opening his mouth and the police started looking into it, then they were able to perform the paternity test and found out that he was not related to anyone named Lisa. As it turns out, however, Lisa discovered that she was related to a woman named Denise Bowden and her real name was Dawn, not Lisa. Wow. I know. So how she felt at that time. Yeah, that would be pretty surprising for sure. Mm, wrenching. It was later discovered that Denise was linked to Rasmussen through a romantic relationship. So basically they were boyfriend, girlfriend at the time, and she had gone missing in 1981. Mm. Police contacted Denise's family and they confirmed that the Bob Evans that was dating Denise in 1981 was in fact the same person as Gordon Jensen, Curtis Kimball, and Terry Rasmussen. Denise's family never reported her missing because they knew that at the time she and her boyfriend were experiencing money problems and they just simply moved away. Beth, I am pretty sure no matter how old I get and how old my daughter gets, if Shelby went a week without talking to me, there's no way that I would not start looking around for her. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know the circumstances of the relationship between Denise and her family. So I know that I could probably go a, a little while without talking to some of my family members. You know, they always say, even though you're blood, doesn't mean you can be friends, right? Exactly. Police actually tracked Denise's address to a home in New Hampshire where they did a search of the property but no signs of Denise were ever found. And I'm not sure exactly when this took place, but based on the timeline of events, this likely occurred in the past decade or so. To date, Denise Bowden is still missing and has never been heard from again. This year marks around 41 years of her disappearance. It wasn't until 2017 that Terry Rasmussen was named a suspect in the Bear Brook case. And why? Because, Beth, I love it when people go online and just start doing their own research. There was one incredible online renegade who took it upon herself to investigate this case in her free time. Kind of like that case that we talked about a couple episodes ago yes. about Luca Magnata, right? Yes, exactly. My thoughts too. Mm -hmm. So 
I'll get into that in just a bit, but I wanted to give you the details of the official identification of the victims found inside the barrels 15 years apart, because I will start mentioning their names when I go back to this online renegade. In 2019, three of the four Bear Brook State Park victims were officially identified as Marlise Elizabeth Honeychurch. She was victim number one and was discovered to be approximately 26 to 27 years of age when she fell victim. Marie Elizabeth Vaughn was victim number two, and she was the one who was found in the same barrel as Marlise and was identified as being age six. I'm going to skip to victim number four, who was Sarah Lynn McWaters, and she was between the ages of one and three. And victim number three, to this date, is yet to be identified. She has never had anybody come forward to say that she belonged to them. She's the one that was age two to four that was found also in the barrel with Sarah McWaters, who was victim number four. On February 20th of 2020, New Hampshire State Police released an updated picture of this identified middle child. So if anybody out there does have any information on a missing child from the year 2000, then by all means, come forward. Now, the oldest victim from the Allentowns 4, Marlies Honeychurch, was initially identified through DNA as being related to Elizabeth Vaughn, the six-year-old, and Sarah Mc waters the one to three-year-old initially as their sister aunt or mother but through all investigations an official connection was made to show that marlise was in fact elizabeth and sarah's biological mother all victims were identified as being related and were last seen in November of 1978. Very strange. Yeah. Now, let me kind of talk to you about this super sleuth. Rebecca Heath is her name, and she is a librarian by trade. The cool thing is, Beth, that Rebecca Heath from Connecticut took a personal interest in this case and conducted her own research on the Allentowns for after listening to a podcast. She's just like you and me. She loves her true crime podcast. Yeah. During an interview, Rebecca stated that she believed this case should be easy to solve because we're dealing with a family here. Like I said before, if my family member went missing, it wouldn't take me long to report them. So if you have enough people in a family missing, certainly enough people out there are going to have some way to connect it. Now, what I'm envisioning is that Rebecca is sitting here on her weekends, mapping, pinning, putting that string across that map, trying to connect the old ancestry websites with Bob Evans, who was named as a primary suspect in the Bearbrook case. Rebecca kept lists with potential leads of relatives of those missing persons. She even kept a list of keywords that she used. There was one podcast that Rebecca was listening to that included information on how oxygen isotopes can shed light on your geographical location based on the water that you drink, which gives hints on how far from the coast or how north somebody might live. So interesting, Beth, the isotopes in our body right now can distinguish where I'm located versus you. That is really cool to know. I have never heard of that. That is so interesting. Mm -hmm. So the podcast that Rebecca was listening to triggered a memory, which went back all the way to a 1999 post that was published on a website 
that she had documented in her notes. The person who made the post was in search of Sarah McWaters, the one to three-year-old infant who was born in California in 1977. Rebecca eventually contacted this family member who responded to say that she was looking for someone also named Marley's Honeychurch and her infant daughter, who was Sarah McWaters. Wow. I know. You know, I think what they say is what goes on the internet basically stays on the internet. So I have too also seen some really old posts out there. I could probably do some research and look for my old, what was the name of that? MySpace. Yes. I even had a MySpace. MySpace. (gasps) What? Beth, after we're done here, I'm going to go see if we can find our old MySpaces and I will update you next time. Okay. (laughs) So other websites also stated that they were in search of Sarah. And through the websites, Rebecca also discovered that Marlies had another daughter named Marie. When talking further with family members, Rebecca was told that Marlise left with her boyfriend, Terry Rasmussen, after an argument with the family and had not been seen ever since. I'm pretty sure that they argued with her about her boyfriend, but we know that we're going to stick up for that guy, right? Yes. Rebecca immediately contacted the police with this information, and this is how three of the four Bear Brook victims came to be identified. Rebecca, if you want to change careers, I think you have a very good future in police investigations. Sure. DNA from Rasmussen's son's first marriage was compared with the victims, and he was identified as the father of the middle child victim who was between the ages of two and four and has yet to be identified to this day. I want to know what happened to her mother. Rasmussen died in prison in 2010, taking all secrets about the last unnamed victim from the Bear Brook case with him. Wow. That's sad that he took all the mystery away. What surprises me about this is he liked to brag about some of the victims, yet he had so many secrets. Yes, he did. And all those different aliases that he went by. Mm -hmm. I didn't take the time to look up what his rap sheet was, but I did find a really cool link on Terry Rasmussen that I will go ahead and put into the show notes, but it does give a really good timeline of him as a younger man and everything that basically led up to where he was and how he got put into prison and So there you have it. That's the story of the New Hampshire Bear Brook State Park victims. And I'm so glad they were at least able to find out who at least three of the victims were. I hope that over time we can find out who the fourth victim is because everybody deserves recognition and we certainly speak for the victims. Amen. So on that note, you didn't talk earlier about a teachable moment. So do you have one for us now? Hmm. Teachable moment. Beth, when your kids were growing up, did you always ask them, what'd you do in school today? Yes. And what did they say? Nothing. Exactly. My teachable moment for today is to make sure that you ask your children open-ended questions when asking about their day. I like that idea. Yeah. You're going to say something instead of, how was your day? Or, what did you do today? Instead, phrase it like, tell me about what your adventures were with your friends today. You still might get a vague answer, but maybe just a little bit more. 
I'm going to see my granddaughter in June. So I think I will do this because when I ask her about her daycare or school, it's always nothing. You mean this teachable moment is going to be useful? Yes, it is. I love that. Me too. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I hope you enjoy that visit. Thanks. And with that being said. And that's a wrap. That is a wrap. And don't forget to visit our social media sites. You can find us at dyingtobefound.com, spelling it just like you see on our logo. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dying To Be Found. And that's dying, the number two, the letter B, found. And don't forget about our small little thank you promotion that we have running through the end of this month. Rate us on your favorite podcast site. Then tag us for your chance to win a free audiobook. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.